So I am celebrating a sort of anniversary uh, for myself. It's not a wedding anniversary, but 30 years ago this month, 30 years ago this month, I had my first paid ministry position. All right, yeah, 30 years, yeah. So, uh, so here's the deal. Let me tell you, it was 1988. I was, uh, I was a sophomore in college, and I became a youth pastor at a church that was 90 miles from my school campus. I would drive 90 miles for Sunday morning. I would take a nap at the church in a back room because college students love naps, and then I would, uh, because I was getting up early, I was getting up at 7.30 back in those days to get to church on time, so that was quite a feat for me, Uh, and uh, they were paying me $50 a weekend to do this, and I thought this they're paying me to do what I would have done for free. And uh, it was very exciting. Here's the reason why I took the position, is that a college professor invited me into his office, and he said, I have this church that I preach at on Sunday mornings, and I think you would be really good to work with our students. And he blew wind into my sails, and I would have done it for free, but he was willing to pay me a whole $50 uh, every weekend, and uh, I make more than that now, and I'm uh, happy. I'm happy for that as well. Uh, but uh, this little church in Indiana, which is I lived, I went to school in Kentucky, and the church was in Indiana, was filled with lovely people who could barely get by. They were a poor working class dairy farms. And they had this tiny little church in a tiny little town with a tiny little high school. The town, this was the thing I remember most about this from 30 years ago. The town was on the time zone line. Now, I don't know who, what genius thought of this, but half the town was in central time zone and the other half of the town was in eastern time zone. So when we would have announcements on Sunday morning, like we've done here, is when you would say, youth group is meeting on Sunday at 7 o'clock, someone would say, is that eastern or central? And the first time, I went, excuse me? Well, there's a time zone issue here. Why wouldn't they just move the time zone? I don't know, but for the next two years, I had to make sure I identified central or eastern time zone every time. (laughs) Now, here's what I loved about this, is that this little town in this Uh, with this little church, with people who were just barely scraping by, when we announced things that were going on in youth ministry, kids came from everywhere. And kids were doing something that was fascinating and exciting. They were inviting their friends to come to church. And we had, we did a lock-in. You know, lock-ins were a thing to do in the 80s, and no youth pastor likes them. And when you do a lock-in, you hope deep down that no one's going to show up. But we had 100 kids show up for a lock-in. And I, I, was, I had no idea what to do with 100 kids at a lock-in. We just stayed up all night because, again, I was in college, and you could do that back in those days. <laughs> but it was fascinating. It was exciting. And so for two years, I did that and loved it. And then eventually, I graduated from college, moved back to New Jersey to go to seminary, and got another ministry position. Again, was a youth pastor. And this time while I was there, I thought, hey, this is a bigger church. This is a bigger, bigger, uh, uh, bigger town bigger high school, exciting opportunities. And so I started doing the same things that we did in Indiana, and I found out it didn't work. 
There were kids coming, but not nearly with the energy or the excitement that the students came in Indiana. And I had to sit back and reflect what was happening, what was going on. And in my young pre-seminary mind, I discerned that it had something to do with this, that in Indiana, Jesus was the main meal. But in New Jersey, Jesus was sort of the parsley on the plate. You've got so many other things on there, and parsley's okay, but if it doesn't show up, no one's sending their meal back because of it. And so for many people, it was, or in Indiana, it was Jesus and the church seemed so large and so valuable and so necessary, while in New Jersey, it seemed small and optional and crowded, and Jesus was just something that I'm trying to squeeze into an already full life. So later on, I kind of noticed that this was a trend that in those impoverished areas, those areas that were under-resourced, Jesus seems to move more easily than in those areas that are resourced or overly resourced. And my conclusion is that much of New Jersey suffers from affluenza. Right? We have this uh, belief that I have all that I need to face life. And so recently, after talking about the importance of practicing hope's invite strategy, that we need to invite people to uh, be a part of our community, but we also need to invite people to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. And after that meeting, someone suggested, you know what would be really helpful, Rick? We need some tools for this. What if you helped us develop an elevator pitch? And you may or may not know what an elevator speech is or an elevator pitch, but it's kind of a 60-second promo of what, you, uh, of what you are trying to sell, whether it's a project or a, a product. And so what can we put together in 60 seconds? And so we talked more about that and, and decided, yeah, tools are important. So how can we develop those tools? And so one of the tools that we are just rolling out this week is uh, inside your program, you'll see uh, a little uh, invite card. We're going to have those uh, at the beginning of every series. We want you to use that to uh, you know, invite some neighbors, invite some coworkers, and those kinds of things. But the reason I tell you that story about the elevator pitch is that that was kind of the genesis for this series, is that, is that as Pastor Jeff and I were looking at series and ways to develop uh, some, some themes, we looked at this idea of an elevator pitch and what would it look like for us to create a series and talk about how do we talk about our faith? How do we talk about those kinds of things that are about Jesus? And so I want to, uh, before we get started, I want to give you just a couple additional thoughts that are going to be important as we go throughout this series. The first one is that this has always been a value of Hope Church. We have always said that we meet people where they are, that we believe Jesus loves every person no matter where they've been or what they've done, and we believe God loves each of us and wants to lead each of us to that next step in faith. The second thing that it's really important for us to know as we go through this next three-week series is that it's unlikely in the 21st century that someone is going to come up to you and say, tell me, about, tell me how I can be a Christian. All right? It's very unlikely that that's going to happen. It might happen, but it's really not likely. It's more likely that they will talk to you about life and they will talk to you about where they are in life and that they will notice that there is something missing from life. The third thing that's important in this series, I think it's important and we'll talk about this throughout, is that when we go to the movies or when we go to a restaurant and we have a really good meal or we see a really good film, we can't wait to tell others about it. Last week during the message, I used an illustration about waiting for a restaurant. And afterward, know what everybody asked me? 
what was the restaurant, right? And so just so you all know, it was the art house in Morristown, all right? It was a great meal. I enjoy going there. I like that kind of food. It was good food. I had a great time. You know what my favorite movie was this last year? 2018, my favorite movie was Black Panther. It, yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a great movie. Now notice how I can talk about the Yard House and I can talk about Black Panther as simply as just sharing that with you. It's so easy. What if it was that easy to talk about our faith, to talk about it as this is something that's really important to me. This is something that has changed my life more than the Yard House and more than Black Panther. And I want to share with you what God has been doing in my life. So what if we could get to having that kind of conversation that simply? And then the last step that it's really important for us to remember as we go into the series is that it's not easy to talk about faith. And some people assume because I'm a pastor, it's easy for me to talk about faith. And you need to know, I want to be honest with you and tell you, it's uncomfortable for me too. When I'm on the golf course, around the third or fourth hole, Guys, in a foursome, if we don't know each other, what will happen is someone will say to me, so what do you do for a living? Let me tell you, it's the conversation killer of all time, all right? I'm a pastor. Cricket, 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 you know? Uh, one time I was golfing with some guys, it was three of us, and there was one guy that joined our foursome, and we were playing uh, 18 holes, and we got through the first nine, and this guy was dropping every word you can imagine after every shot. And when we got to the ninth hole, we're on the putting green, uh, on the green, we're about to putt, and I'm, I'm standing over my putt get, and he says, so what do you guys do? And I said, without flinching, I'm a pastor. And then we went from the ninth hole to the tenth, and he said he had to leave. Now, I felt bad because I've heard all those words, I've used some of them, and it was okay, but he could not believe that he was golfing with three other pastors. So I know that talking about spiritual things is hard, it's not easy to do, okay? But I just want you to know all that up front as we get ready to do this series, okay? So some background now on the scripture. We're going to read about a guy named Nicodemus, who is the main character in the story. Nicodemus uh, was a wealthy man. He was a Pharisee, which means that he had some, uh, a real desire to be close to God. But in his attempts to get close to God, the Pharisees had developed this set of rules that had become enormous and were rules that were nearly impossible to keep because they believed the, close, or the closer they followed these rules, the closer they could get to God. And so uh, Nicodemus, meaning well, and uh, the Pharisees, meaning well, were creating this system that could not, be, uh, uh, could not be followed. And so he was wealthy, he was a very, very, very religious person, and he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court in a sense, okay? So this guy would have fit really well into our 21st century thinking in USA. He was affluent. He had power, he had prestige, he had resources, and he was a guy who on the outside seemed to have everything going for him. 
Now, if you've read the Bible, uh, this is one of those famous stories. It contains probably the most famous scripture, right? John 3.16 is in this story uh, of Nicodemus. Uh, We're not going to read the whole story. As a matter of fact, we're only going to read the first two verses. And so uh, if you want to read the rest of this yourself, that's a homework assignment for you. John chapter 3 in the New Testament, and it's the story of Nicodemus. So we're going to read just two verses. They're going to come up on the screen behind me. The first one is John chapter 3. Verse 1 says this, There was a man named Nicodemus, this is the guy I just told you about, he's a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Verse 2, After dark one evening he came to speak with Jesus. Now some scholars believe that Nicodemus came as a representative of this Jewish Supreme Court, that he came to Jesus to ask some questions of Jesus, to investigate Jesus, and so that the Supreme Court could then determine an official response to the things that Jesus was teaching and saying. I don't believe that that's very likely. Nicodemus would not have needed to sneak up or come at night. He would have scheduled an appointment or would have met with Jesus during the day, which other officials did when they wanted to confront Jesus. So I don't believe that that's why this is taking place at night. I believe that this is a personal visit that Nicodemus is having, and there's a personal agenda uh, at, at, at place here. So I believe that Nicodemus was comfortable approaching Jesus. Nicodemus was uncomfortable with the response that his cohorts and his partners and those that he worked with, he was concerned of how they would respond to his visit with Jesus. And so that's why he's meeting with him at night. And so Nicodemus begins his conversation with Jesus with this statement. It's up on the screen. He says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So Nicodemus, while he's not yet fully convinced, has seen the miracles that Jesus has performed, that Jesus was intriguing him, and that Jesus, that he was curious about who Jesus was. And there was something about Jesus' words and actions that attracted Nicodemus, that Nicodemus has been watching and he's been noticing how Jesus has been walking and talking and doing the things that he does through town. Now, I'm reading a book. It's called Surprise Your World. Uh, It's a small little book, Surprise Your World. And the author's challenge, and it kind of drew me into the book pretty quickly, the author's challenge is that each of us need to learn to live questionable lives. We need to learn to live questionable lives. Now, when I was in my 20s, I think there were quite a few things that could be questionable about the way I lived. Uh, But I'm hoping that now that in my 50s, that isn't the case. Uh, But it drew me in. I was like, what does it mean to live a questionable life? And then he went on to explain it in the introduction to the book is that a questionable life looks like this. He described first century Rome, which was this brutal and violent culture. But yet in the first few centuries, the church grew exponentially in the midst of this oppression and this violence of Rome. He said that in this cutthroat, brutal world where weakness would lead to death, that there were these early Christians who were living life differently. They were living stunningly different lives. They were kind to those who were weak. They were generous to everyone, and they provided 
care for the sick and the poor. As a matter of fact, uh, during this time, uh, there were, uh, whenever there was a plague in a Roman town or city to combat the plague, they would just, uh, they would evacuate the city and leave all those who were sick behind. And then when it was safe to go back, when all those who were sick had died, then they'd go back into those towns. The Christians wouldn't leave. The Christians would choose to care for those who were sick. It was also in this time period, again, this brutal, cutthroat, violent society. Children who were unwanted would be put out into alleyways and streets to be collected for trash. Infants born who were not males or who were seen to have birth defects were left on the street. And Christians were going through and seeing them and collecting them and caring for them and raising them as their own. This radical lifestyle that was taking place in the first several hundred years of the church's existence, it was counter-cultural and it was questionable. Now move us into the 21st century. Generosity and kindness have become expected of the church. The church is seen as a church that serves, that provides for and cares for those who are sick and those who are poor and those who are weak. Those who are followers of Christ, those who attend these churches, are expected to have those same kind of behaviors. So that means cutting your lawn and saying hi to your neighbor isn't questionable. It's just being nice. People expect the church to be like that. So how can, the, how, can, how can we live a life in the 21st century that would evoke questions? How can we live a life that would be questionable to our neighbors and to our family members and to our coworkers? What kind of life would be attractive and curious to our neighbors? How does an engineer or a teacher or a project manager live differently when they say they're a Christ follower? Honesty and kindness, right? Yeah, of course, that's supposed to happen. But what else? What makes our lives questionable? What set of rhythms and habits can we create or should we have that would lead towards godly, intriguing, socially adventurous, and joyous lives for the people around us? So what does radical and questionable living look like in the 21st century? I think that's just an astounding, exciting question to begin to want. Like, what does it look like to live this way? To live radically different? Now, we're going to find out, I'm going to tell you right now, if you read all of John chapter 3, the story kind of ends, and we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. It kind of just ends abruptly. Nicodemus has this deep theological conversation with Jesus, and then it just ends. There's no evidence because of this conversation that Nicodemus' life changes. But the Nicodemus story isn't fully written yet. Nicodemus is going to appear two more times in John's gospel. 
The first one is in John chapter 7. It's up on the screen. It's sometime later. Nicodemus is present. He's at a meeting of that Jewish Supreme Court that I was talking about. And they are making plans to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus speaks up. He's the leader who met with Jesus earlier. John makes that clear. And he says, is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? So Nicodemus begins to argue, but he argues for justice. He doesn't argue as a follower of Jesus. He isn't standing up for Jesus. He's just saying, hey, listen, um, we, need to be, uh, we need to be fair and just here. We're suggesting that we can just go out and just get Jesus. But I don't think we can do that. It would seem that something is happening in Nicodemus's life. And then it's made crystal clear, I would suggest, in John chapter 19. Nicodemus is still having his story written. And in chapter 19, he shows up one more time. This time, it's after Jesus's crucifixion. It says, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away, and with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. It's like John wants to make sure we know this is the same Nicodemus. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes, and following Jesus' Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. And so Nicodemus comes to the cross of Jesus. I would suggest he comes as a friend. He has now become bold enough to publicly reveal where he stands. John tells us that Nicodemus brings, spends a fortune bringing 75 pounds of spices. It was the same type of spices and the right amount for a kingly burial. Is it possible Nicodemus sees Jesus as his king? Somehow Nicodemus was drawn to follow Jesus. He has this initial intriguing encounter, a quiet, secretive conversation, and then this slow journey towards faith. Carrie Newoff recently said, Jesus was good at loving people into life change. And so here's my challenge for you this morning. People are watching you live your life. I know stalker alert, that's a little creepy. But people are watching you live your life. And so how noteworthy is the life that you're living? Is it intriguing? Is it attractive? Is it a questionable life? See, in the brutality of the first century, generosity and kindness and care was enough. It was enough to draw people in because it was so radically different. But in the 21st century, if those things are expected, what makes our life, what makes your life, what makes my life questionable? So I want to tell you a quick story. I have a friend named Dan. Dan lives across the street from me. Uh, Dan has lived uh, across the street the whole time we lived in our house. We lived in our house for 14 years. Uh, when we first moved in, I didn't get to know Dan very well because Dan was working. But a few years later, Dan got sick. I don't really know exactly what happened to Dan, but he, he became sick enough that Dan couldn't work any longer, and he began walking with a severe limp, so much so that some days he has to use a walker. And Dan's an older gentleman, and so he 
he's retired now, and he's learning to get by with his limp and his, injury, or his sickness. Uh, it's something to do with his bones in his hips and legs. Dan decided, not great advice, but Dan decided that once he got sick and once he was no longer able to work, that he would start smoking cigarettes. Uh, and so Dan smokes. His wife doesn't approve of Dan's smoking cigarettes, so Dan's required to smoke his cigarettes on his front porch. This is how I got to know Dan. Dan spends almost his entire waking day on the front porch, rain, shine, whatever the weather. Dan's on the front porch smoking cigarettes, and our neighborhood has become his HDTV. Dan knows everything that's going on in the neighborhood, and because he lives directly across the street from us, he knows everything about what's going on in our lives. Dan watches everything. Dan watches our house when we're home and when we're not home. Dan watches all the neighbors as well. Dan, when I come home, I pull up to the front of the house, and when I get out of my car, before I have gotten my stuff out of the back seat to carry it in, Dan will say, hey, Rich. He calls me Rich. Remember we had that name thing a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I'm still Rich to Dan, all right? And so he calls me Rich, and then he says, UPS came by. They left a package on your porch. Great, thanks, Dan. I'm going to see that in about 30 seconds, but thanks for that information, right? We have people who will watch our house because we have several cats and a dog. And so when we go away, we have a house sitter, right, who watches our house. Dan watches the house sitter. He lets me know, you know that girl you had watching your house? She came in really late the other night. <laughs> thanks, Dan. That's great information. I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but thanks for sharing that. But here's what's happened with Dan and I, is I realize Dan watches us. Dan one time said to me, you and your wife spend a lot of time together. I said, yeah, I really like her. <laughs> and then he said, you know what? You've got really nice kids. I said, thanks, Dan. I think they're nice kids too. Dan comes over to my house he, uh, with his, he's got a broom pole that he uses for a stick and he walks across the street and I'm out in my garage doing something and I can hear Dan coming all the way across. He shuffles across and he's going to come all the way. Even if I meet him in the street, he's still going to come all the way up my driveway, a little bit of an incline. And he comes over and Dan and I talk. Dan is fascinated that I'm a pastor, all right? And I'm fascinated by Dan. And so we end up having conversations on Friday mornings when I'm off from work. He'll say, you're not golfing today? I'm like, no, I'm not golfing. It's a little too cold. Oh, you should golf anyway. No, I'm not going to golf. It's too cold, Dan. I found out that Dan was an orphan and raised in a Catholic orphanage, that Dan's a Vietnam veteran, that Dan, when he came home from Vietnam, was addicted to heroin, and that Dan became homeless right after he got home from Vietnam, and that Dan spent a few years living on the streets. And then Dan got clean, and Dan went to college, and Dan became a drug counselor. The guy that smoked cigarettes on, my, on the front porch across the street from me had that kind of life experience. And so Dan grew up Catholic, and so Dan is fascinated that I'm a pastor because he thinks it's a priest, and that I'm married, and that I have kids, and that I like my wife, and that my kids turned out pretty good. <laughs> Dan asks me questions about what it means to be a pastor, and I ask him questions about all sorts of things. 
Dan has some really strong opinions about life. He has opinions about the church. He has opinions about faith. He has opinions about women, which we won't go into. And he has some real opinions about life in general. He has some thoughts about our other neighbors and all sorts of things. And throughout that time, I'll say to Dan, Dan, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that way. I don't think that's true. I think there's some other things that might be a play here as we talk about those things. Dan is the saltiest character I know right now. Dan uses words that you can't imagine, and he strings them together in real creative ways. <laughs> and I think that Dan's doing this, and I think he's trying to see how far he can take this conversation with me. But he's met his match, because I'm unflappable. I've heard all those words. I told you I'm a golfer. <laughs> it doesn't bother me one bit. And so Dan and I have this conversation. A few years ago, I started asking him about his health and started asking him about what led to that. And Dan doesn't like talking about that. He changes the subject almost immediately. When we talk about faith, he pushes back really hard. But Dan and I are developing a friendship. And what was questionable for Dan was that I'm a pastor. That's what led him to these conversations. Now, we're still slowly, painstakingly having these spiritual conversations. And I know for some people, it works a lot faster. But here's what I know about Dan. His story is still not fully written. And so I'm going to keep taking out the trash, and I'm going to say hi to Dan. And I'm going to keep doing things, and he's going to ask me to do things at his house that I say, Dan, I can't do that. He thinks I can fix anything. He has no idea. All right? And I say, Dan, I can't do that, all right? I have a friend who can do that, but I can't do that. But Dan and I are developing this friendship. And I believe it's going to lead to faith conversations. So here's my question for you. What is questionable about your life? What kind of life evokes that you're living will evoke questions. How does an engineer or a manager or a small business owner live differently? Maybe it just means that you show up at your job as an accountant or a teacher and you're going to do your job really, really well. And your place of business or your school or the world will be a better place because of your work. And every day when you show up for work, you'll embody the way of Jesus so that your boss and your coworkers and your contractors and your clients or your students, and they will all get a glimpse of what Jesus's way is all about, and hopefully they'll want to join you. And somehow they'll recognize there's something different. There's something unique. There's something that is questionable. And maybe they will ask you questions about life. And maybe we need to believe that every person's story is still being written. And we get to have part of that story be part of our story as well. See, this is the new and old way of Jesus. See, Jesus models the best way. He had this light that was intriguing and approachable, and he was so patient. 
It assumes that we will be engaged in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our clubs, in our schools, in our teams. It assumes that we will lead lives that will evoke questions. It is definitely not standing on a street corner with a bullhorn. I know that that doesn't work. I've never done it. I've seen it, and I don't like it. So I'm sure those who are not part of the church don't like it either. So it's not that. I definitely don't think it's church revivals because that's assuming that those who used to go to church will come back or that they ever were in church. And we can't make that assumption either. So it's not that. I think it is living a life that's attractive to others, to leverage every relationship, to be approachable and patient, to be different and distinct in the way that will lead others to respond to the life we're living. And in that, to be connected in such a way to the world around us that our relationships will lead to conversations and ways to talk about faith in the same way that we can talk about what, we, what restaurant we were at last week or what movie we saw this year. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so, God, I pray that this would be our heart's desire. I thank you, God, for the men and women who have gathered here in this space. I thank you, God, for the lives represented here. And I pray, God, that we would, as individuals and as a church, live lives that are questionable. That people will be drawn towards us, that they'd be attracted to the life that we live. God, that they would recognize that there's something different, maybe not able to put a finger on it, but there's something different and they want to know what that is. God, I pray that we would have the courage and the passion and the desire to have those conversations. And God, we will ask that you would provide us with divine inspiration in those cases. And God, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in our church's life. And God, we look forward to all that you're going to do in us and through us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. And now as you go, I pray that you would go. I pray that you would go knowing that there's a God that loves you with his whole heart, that he loves you enough that he would rather die than live without you, that he would choose to vacate heaven so that he could reign in our hearts and lives forever. And I pray that you would know that, and that you would know that there's a world outside those doors that is desperate to know of that kind of love. Amen. Have a great day.